Welcome to IFG Live. I'm Tim Durrant, working on our Minister's Programme. Uh, coronavirus is dramatically changing all of our lives, and the IFG is no different. Unfortunately, we're not able to hold public events anymore, but we're still bringing together expert panels for discussions and debates that get to the heart of how government works. Check out our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, and our new podcast, IFG Live, to hear about everything we're up to. Today, we're here to talk about the role of special advisors, or SPADs, in government. A few short weeks ago, the big story in Westminster was about how the Prime Minister's chief advisor, Dominic Cummings, has tried to centralise management of SPADs from Number 10, and is standardising the recruitment process for SPADs as well. It feels like a very different world now, doesn't it? But the role of SPADs is, of course, still hugely important. They're temporary civil servants appointed by ministers to provide political advice that the permanent civil service cannot provide. We're going to talk about the impact the government's changes are likely to have, as well as how the role of SPADs has already changed in recent times. And we have a fantastic panel to discuss this. Salma Shah, who is an advisor to Sajid Javid in four of his cabinet roles, as Culture, Business, Communities and Home Secretary. John McTurnan, who was political secretary to Tony Blair in the noughties, and Baroness Simone Finn, who was an advisor to Francis Maud, the Minister for the Cabinet Office during the coalition. Ahead of today's recording, we've asked people to write in with their questions, and we've had a great response to that. So thank you very much. Let's start, Salma, with you. Um, you worked in four departments with Sajid Javid. How did you first get that job, and how would you describe the role of being a special advisor? Um, so it's interesting in terms of special advisor recruitment because uh, there is no real formal process that I'm aware of. Uh, I was somebody who worked on the 2010 general election campaign. So the that incarnation of number 10 under David Cameron knew me. And so when Sajid was promoted to cabinet, I was put forward as a, as a recommendation of somebody who might be able to do the job. Um, and I think lots of people are very critical of the fact that there isn't a formal process. But anybody who's worked in the party offices, who's worked on election campaigns, um, tend to be the people that you turn to um, when you're, uh, when you're being, uh, trying to fill a role. Mm. Um, from your point of view, what makes a SPAD good at their job? What does an effective special advisor look like? So I, I've used this term before. It's not a science, it's an art form, because actually being a special advisor, you, you could be in kind of an infinite um, number of different scenarios, and it depends how you react to it. So firstly, being a good special advisor is actually understanding what your minister wants from you. So if you are a new special advisor to an old hand minister, um, then they might not need you for you know the, the kind of things that... Um, other special advisors do so for example doing big management of the department or you know looking at the briefing or looking at the policy um and if they're a new uh, a new minister then it might be that you are doing a lot of hand holding it might be that you are doing a lot of the communications and a lot of the big advice around uh, that kind of thing um and also it depends on context so you know i worked under david cameron and theresa may there was with really different uh, complexions of government at that point. Um, so there was, under Cameron, it was it was much more centralised because you knew he was in charge, and particularly after the 2015 election, even though it was only for a year, he'd come back with a majority. So, like I say, the infinite possibilities of the way that you can be a special advisor, and it really is about those those key things, like, you know, what does your minister want and, and what's the context of, of the time that you're working in? Yeah, absolutely. So, so John, maybe the centre. You, you, you were in number ten. You were in the centre of government for for a couple of years. How did you manage the relationship with special advisors across government? So, it's a very special kind of appointment, as, as Salma said, and it is very personal to the ministers. So, from at the outset, I did. You know, you have to recommend to the prime minister whether you think. The suggested special advisors uh, being proposed by ministers should be appointed by the prime minister um, because in the end it is a prime ministerial appointment, not a ministerial appointment. Um, and although at first I, uh, there were people who I put question marks over, uh, in the end the view, the view I came to is um, you, the prime minister only has limited political capital with anybody in the cabinet, however weak that person is, and very rarely wants to use that capital until it's absolutely necessary. So in the end, I didn't suggest blocking any appointments for quality reasons. Um, some people uh, did end up as ministers appointing what you might call comfort blankets uh, rather than special advisors. Um, but in the end, ministers are only as good as the team that they have 
And if you choose to appoint a weak team, in the end, you will suffer. Uh, your performance will suffer, uh, whether it is in, uh, in terms of press and presentation and policy and managing the department and managing stakeholders, relating to other departments, uh, just getting decent political advice. Um, and so, you know, uh, bad spads uh, are their own punishment. Um, and so in that sense, I didn't ever get involved in uh, in that. I did try to hold the line to only two spads per um, per per minister because I didn't think really people needed any more, and there has been drastic spadflation since uh, since my since my time. Um, but what I did decide to do uh, was to use Fridays when ministers were in their constituencies and when Tony was at Checkers to actually draw the spads together to have a, a, a regular weekly meeting of which. People could come. They could have a cup of tea. They could get into Downing Street, which actually, you know, very not very many advisors do get into Downing Street ever. And so, actually, you bring them into the centre of government, the symbolic and actual centre of the government. Uh, and then I would have somebody from one department present an issue of concern to to them. We had a really good one from the transport spad on Open Skies too, and that mattered. Uh, a variety of those issues that actually are just useful of broader reference, and sometimes, and then I would take the second half of the meeting uh, to give them the hard line, the party line, uh, um, what we had to say on certain issues, what our position was going up to conference, what our position was uh, managing the party and the unions on certain certain issues. So it was a kind of it was a social thing, it was an exchange of ideas thing, it was a get together. People often had lunch after it. But people knew that it was so that they came together to hear what the line was, what they had to say. Because by and large, you get in your silos, so you do need to see people socially. But you get in your silos, and you need to be told what the overall government view is. Um, yeah. I, did a, I did a similar thing for all the researchers, for all Labour MPs, uh, uh, once a week as well, to just make sure top and bottom uh, there was consistency. And that, I thought, was the, the best way to draw together people who aren't under your direct management and actually... Uh, are, are like um, academics. They're really unmanageable en masse. And so you have to give them some kind of treat uh, and some, you know, some, a, car a carrot, a stick, and uh, a genetically modified carrot that tastes like a stick. <laughs> so what's, what's your view on, on what the current administration is doing? We know that they're quite keen to kind of centralise fad management. We know that Dominic Cummings... Uh, until he also had to self-isolate, was having Friday meetings with the SPAD network as well. Um, do you think that's a good idea? Uh, I think the Friday meetings are a very sensible idea. I think trying to have more direction, um, I can see why it's tempting, uh, but governing is not campaigning. And that is the problem. There are so many decisions, so many big issues that go on. Even in the, even in the department, it's very hard for the, for the sector of state, even with their advisors, to keep across all the decisions that all junior ministers have to make. There are so many decisions, so many statements, so, so many little touches on the tiller. Uh, and I think you can go mad trying to do that. What you have to do is, uh, in my view, you, you set a culture, a direction, a purpose, a set of values, a way of working. Uh, the micromanagement, I don't, th I don't think will work. And I think obviously there's a view that um, there's been a huge triumph at number 10 uh, in um, controlling the the chancellor's special advisors, it's not clear that Rishi Sunak's um, public profile uh, has been impacted by the number ten joint operation spads, or any more than it's actually been actually impacted by his performance in in the substantive task of being of being a chancellor. And I think mm. what number ten is going to find is any number ten only has limited uh, political capital. And whether you want to expend that capital on your cabinet on dictating how they appoint advisors and how you manage them, I'm not sure. Because if you get to the point where you need the capital and you spent on something like that, you might think that's a problem because n no prime minister is as strong as when they take office. And uh, that strength ebbs away every day, even during a crisis like this. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense completely. So, Simone, you you worked with with Francis Maud, and one of one of the big issues that he was dealing with was uh, civil service reform. And we know that the the coalition government spent a lot of political capital on that. Um, how did you find working with with civil servants on that on that issue? Well, experiences of civil service reform are are always rather um, interesting. It's it was it was rare for a minister at that time to take that much of an interest, and even rarer for a minister to outlast um, 
some of the permanent secretaries um, and and, this, and the civil servants they were working with. And Francis did um, did risk uh, unpopularity, shall we say, by by taking things on. What Francis did was he set up a, an efficiency and reform group as well as doing the civil service reform. And this efficiency and reform, which set up things like the government digital service, the major projects authority, uh, reform procurement, looked at the property property across government. It saved over fifty billion pounds over the sort of coalition period, the five years. And it was very unpopular in in Whitehall because it sort of cut across the departmental autonomy of permanent secretaries. And um and, and that that was that that proved very unpopular. But turning to the um the civil service reform agenda itself, a lot of it um the a lot of that did create um a lot of tension with um with, with the higher echelons of the civil service. Um I mean, some of the uh, younger civil servants act, sort of act, were actually quite keen and rather liked it. But um but you know we, we set in place something called the extended ministerial office. Um and um and th- this was in response to the fact that minister we felt that ministers were sort of woefully underpowered, their offices were woefully underpowered compared with uh, those in um, those in other, even Westminster-style democracies, such as Australia or New Zealand. Um, and the IPP, uh, we commissioned the IPPR to do a report on this, and they came, they, they agreed. So, um, so the idea behind the extended ministerial office was that um, a minister could appoint sort of not very many people, but say up to 15 people who would be um, in their private office. They could give sort of maybe some more relevant policy advice. There would be interaction. You could appoint civil servants as well as um, as well as outside as outside special advisors and and policy and expert advisors, not people who are necessarily special advisors. Um, and so that so the idea was that good political judgment could sit alongside sort of relevant policy advice. And I, I, I never quite understood why this was so um, so disliked by the higher echelons of uh, the, by the permanent secretaries, if you like, because the whole idea was to get a better mix of special advisors, expert advisors, and civil servants, but having one line of accountability to the minister, because there's often a dual line of accountability in the private office to a permanent secretary and to the minister, and that divided loyalty when they're not getting on can be a bit difficult. Absolutely. So I'm interested in in the panel's views on this point about, you know, should there be more political appointees in government generally, whether those are sort of, you know, purely political special advisors or more sort of expert advisors? Do we think there is a benefit to like the Australian and the New Zealand system of having more kind of um, temporary political appointees in government? Yes, the the Australian system, though, not the New Zealand system. The New Zealand system is a monstrous machine for empowering the bureaucrats uh, over, <laughs> the, over the politicians. Um, okay. To, to, just to, just because I worked in the Australian system, obviously, and um, uh, that's where I first met Simone when she was uh, doing some uh, investigation research on behalf of, of Francis. The New Zealand system is a very hard, is a very hard uh, one where ministers give a mandate to the, the permanent secretaries of the departments and then the departments just go off and they deliver the mandate. And so it builds an inflexibility and an inability to uh, to, to, sh- to change course, to shift, to have the flexibility that the British civil service is really good at. The Australian system is probably too far over within, in, 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 in terms of political staff. I, I was in the Prime Minister's office. My uh, press office, run entirely by me, was... Um, 20 staff um and that was this that's the size of uh, political staffing that uh, a junior minister would have so you're talking about a really a really substantial system and what it led to was um minister ministers and ministers offices uh, ended up being so large they were located outside departments um and in fact you know all they had was little emb- embassies in the in their in their department the home department uh, and they had departmental liaison officers and there's quite quite a lot uh, of of quite uh elaborate bureaucracy for the for the departments to talk to the ministers through departmental liaison officers so it got a bit sclerotic in that sense it does have more of a morphing and more of an American style of a senior, you know, 
the, the person who ended up heading the competition commission in 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 Australia in my time was uh, a former advisor to economic advisor to uh, Prime Minister Bob Hawke, the Labour Prime Minister, but had also been a departmental secretary in between, both in a state and in a in, in, in the federal government. So there's more of a movement between academia, lobbying, depart, departments, the staffers. You, you can't imagine yet, uh, apart from Simon Stevens, I suppose, a good example of a, of, a, of a British government staffer becoming the head of a civil service department. Although I think that actually, uh, that is somewhere where I think we could learn from Australia, the ability to have... Uh, Talented senior leaders who are who have got staffing experience, who then get other experience, then come back uh, and having had the the advising, the private sector, and the NGO uh, not profit experience. So I I think we should I think we're quite in the gifted amateur end of the market where we say let's have one or two or maybe three, so we don't pollute the politicization, you don't pollute the civil service, the politicization, and I think that does that does give us a problem because. The reaction to that, in look in Scotland, where in effect the entire civil service was um, politicised to the cause of independence, which wasn't, I think, a very good thing for the UK civil service uh, as a whole, as, a, as, a, as, a, as uh, since the, Scotland's part of the UK civil service. So I kind of think you have to find some way of growing the political appointments to do the job of government. And so it's got to be a negotiated growth. And, and I thought that's what, I mean, what, what Francis and Simone came up with was a was a very classic British compromise. It was the best of uh, it's it the best of Australia, uh, but with the kind of British caution. I think I think there's a bigger issue here, though, is that and I, you you slightly touched upon it there, John. It's kind of what do you want the political appointments for? And it certainly is um, an evolutionary process. But I would I would just sort of slightly argue the civil servants position here a, a bit as well to caution against a kind of huge expansion political appointees in that what do they serve and do you have faith that every new minister that comes in understands how to to use um political appointees um so if you go back to your original point about some of them being comfort blankets you know you don't want a team of 15 in the extended ministerial office being comfort blankets and I think that's where you need to try and get it right which is where you need to offer some flexibility I think certainly people who are in the great offices of state need to have much bigger offices because political offices because of what they are doing and because of the absolute mountain of work that comes their way um you know all cabinet ministers work very hard and have a lot but particularly the great offices of state and also i think you have to then understand again what is the context what are you trying to achieve with any particular department certain departments are not going to have priority in any government's agenda so is it right that they should have 15 plus um extra political staff um as not a drain on the on the resource, but you know, sort of beavering away on things that actually might be completely irrelevant to the to the government agenda, and and also there's a question about actually is it a, are you looking for political staff because you need to have a bulwark against um, bad advice that sometimes can come up. I'm sure we've all had experiences of that, or uh, advice that is not considered um, has uh, or had advice that hasn't had proper political consideration. Is that the issue? That trying to solve i think sometimes we try and put this kind of standardization over the top of you know how how politics and political advice should work but we don't really get to the crux of what we want it for in the changing political context um can, can i make a point though sat salma on, on and to, to follow up on that which is um the, the the idea i mean everyone uses the word politicization and i i think what um a number of ministers who want to um, especially if you're driving through new reforms or whatever, you, you do actually want to be able to, you don't want to be appointing political appointments in terms of special advisors. And let's remember, special advisors are merely temporary civil servants with political impartiality waived. Um, and um, But what I think uh, uh, decent ministers want is to have some expert policy advice that doesn't necessarily, to, to, to make sure that their, uh, their agenda is being driven, that the government agenda is being driven, but actually that might not be contained within the department. Um, and 
and and and then and then um, these expert advisors who are not necessarily political beings, and that's what the extended ministerial office was trying to get at that you could actually bring in people from outside who might have more relevant experience, um, and and that. Um, and that these people would then be able to, when when the inevitable submissions came up, explaining why things were impossible um, or too difficult or maybe couldn't be done in this and this this way, would be able to say, well, hang on a minute, it you know, there's a balance to that and maybe you could do it this way. And I do think it's important to, you know, that you have the advice. Um, no minister worth their salt will not take decent advice from civil servants. But equally, it is important to be able to challenge the advice just as it's important for the for the, uh, f- for the civil servant to be able to challenge the minister's uh, decisions and to talk it through. Mm. And is there something here about how the civil servants providing that advice work with the the special or the political advisors at different points in the process. So I was talking to a civil servant recently and he was saying what a good SPAD will do is get involved early on in the sort of advice process so that when it eventually gets in front of the minister, you know, the the kind of political and and, uh, external considerations have been woven in rather than trying to sort of scribble something on top of it at the last minute. Completely agree. Um, totally, I, I couldn't agree with that more. It used to drive me mad when you'd get a sort of completed document um, that was, you know, often badly written, full of jargon, actually hadn't even been commissioned in some cases, and you were told to sort of just sign it off. Um, and, and and it was simply, no, actually, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it properly, um, and we're going to look at it from an evidence-based point of view, and we're going to write it in a, in a robust fashion. And that, you know, if, if the works wasn't of a decent quality, then it 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 was it needed to be redone. And um, I mean, I, I spent the majority of my time just sort of um, putting things into more intelligible English. Yeah, yeah. Can I can I ask what are your views on how uh, special advisors work with junior ministers? So it's mainly uh, members of the cabinet, secretaries of state, um, who who get special advisors. Uh, there are a few junior ministers who have special advisors. Most of them don't. But in any department, you know, there are going to be spads and there are going to be junior ministers. What was the relationship between you and and the other junior ministers that you each worked with like? Um, Salma, should we start with you? So um, I have to say, Asaj took the view that the special advisors were a political resource for all ministers in the department. But um, you've got to remember that ministers have their own relationship with the prime minister. Their secretary of state doesn't appoint them. Um, So... There is this. There is a, there's a strange separation where you actually have a boss in the department, but they're not really your boss. You're actually trying to impress the prime minister. So I had a real mixed experience about how many people would actually want to engage with the special advisors, and we sort of, you know, the, the various bad teams that I work with, sort of left it to the ministers to decide. And I think there is um, a sort of very easy split in that those the people who had been junior ministers for a while you know maybe you had reached minister of state level they weren't particularly interested and they uh, wanted to sort of push back slightly against some of the things that the secretary of state might do and felt that it was their responsibility to do that and therefore didn't want to involve themselves with the spads too much uh when you had sort of new um junior ministers coming in uh, so parliamentary undersecretaries they would definitely um, want to take your advice on communication on how they were supposed to deal with their civil servants on how they should uh, shape something and actually they were also helpful to SPADs because they were having conversations in Parliament. They were speaking to stakeholders all the time. So they were um, quite useful for uh, as an intelligence resource when something contentious or difficult was coming up. But again, it, it just changes depending on the personalities and the, and the relationships that you forge. So, so much of it is very dependent, not on the system or the process, but actually those um, individual relationships. Absolutely. John, did you have any reflections from, from your time on that? Being a special advisor is an incredible job and you you fly high, uh, have really high access and real seniority and you can crash low. And so, you know, your junior minister um, may well be your next employer. So you've always got to be careful about that, I think, um, because, the, you know, the you, you, while your boss may be reshuffled, you may want to be recycled. So there's always an element of that, I think, um, uh, in, in the relationship with junior ministers. But for pure politics, the most important member of our deep part of our ministerial team for me was always the whip. Uh, I always made sure that the um, the departmental whip um, was in the ministers' meetings, had a good relationship with them, 
because good good whips are you know they are worth their weight in gold they tell you what's really going on they're an alternative source of information intelligence for you they'll tell you that if you've got a good relationship they will tell you things they won't tell you your secretary of state and it is really important to have um, a whole system of narcs through the system will tell you things uh, that, they, that, they, that they won't tell to the uh, the minister directly. And you've got to have people who know, believe and trust that they can tell you something that you won't tell the Secretary of State, but you will do the necessary thing to, cor- to correct what's going wrong. But can I just yeah. say, actually... Yeah. Uh, in in our tenure, it was it was so difficult actually to talk to the whips in that way. So right. I all, all the whips came to to our meetings, but there was there beca- there became this very strange hostility mm. between whips and departments at, at one point, where the whips office sort of became its own entity. Yeah, and that was very very strange. That whole system that you employed in terms of the whips i think broke down slightly in terms of its relationship with departments so um i can i can definitely that to me underlines your point that actually good whips are worth their weight in gold um and actually that the fact that that didn't work for a long time under theresa may uh, i think really undermined a lot of government business yeah I, I would to- I would totally agree with Selma on that because um, and, and it and it does play to the point about different times because um, during the coalition with Francis, um, you know, we realised that a lot of the junior ministers um, and the whips weren't actually coming to Monday prayer meetings um, to discuss the week ahead. So, uh, a la John, we um, decided that it was probably a better idea to organise lunch. And um, <laughs> possibly with a bit of wine. Um, and, and, su- and suddenly, you know, I mean, Michael Heseltine started crashing. It was great. Uh, <laughs> and, and we, ha- we had an odd bunch of ministers in the cabinet office because Ken Clark was there, who nobody um, would deem worthy, you know, who, who, was, who was a great beast and was, was not someone you, you controlled, as it were. Um, and, um, and, you know, and, and Nick Hurd, who got on incredibly well with Francis. So he used to draw on the special advisors as a resource. Um, and, and the meetings were very friendly. And likewise, when I worked in Sajid's department, um, briefly when Francis was trade minister, um, all the special advisors were very encouraged to, I, I worked for two different, two other different ministers then as well. And all the special advisors were very much encouraged to be part of a, a, a resource for, for, for all the other ministers and were often quite vital in talking to each other. But at the end of the day, the, the relationships are quite personal. Yeah, absolutely. So from a, from a special advisor's point of view, what makes a good minister? What, who is someone that you want to work for? I think it depends on why you're in it. So I, I did five and a bit years in government and um, I went through a lot of cycles, uh, you know, general elections, um, you know, in the middle of parliaments and leadership contests and all this kind of stuff. And um, I think if you if you go in off the back of a general election where you've won something, you know, there's a real sort of momentum and you want to work for somebody who's a doer, a former somebody who is whose career is going to go well because you do have that sense of urgency in wanting to deliver I think by the end of my time in government all, all I wanted to do was just try and <laughs> create some kind of certainty because we just you know everyone was having a collective breakdown um, it was just you know just you just wanted to work for somebody who was competent enough to be able to manage the department and make sure that nothing was falling over um so i think it sort of depends on what what part of the cycle you come in at and also what what you do so i i i started off doing more comms really than than anything else and then shifted into a bit of policy and then was uh, more strategic and uh, that that kind of gives it gives your um you know what you want to do and who you want to do it for a bit of a change as well if you're coming in for policy expertise then you know you're not you're you're probably going to be recycled in the same department but if you're not doing that and you're much more of a generalist you might be hopping around from place to place because somebody's interesting or because the subject is interesting or or whatever but it, again i mean i think i think my whole <laughs> my whole piece here is just about talking about context and how that 
sort of drives everything in terms of decision making. Okay, well, my my view would be that you would uh, that um, I mean, from where I came from, I, you you would want to work for a minister who actually did have quite a clear agenda, um, who you, you would be able. I mean, a good special advisor um, absolutely would would challenge a minister. I was Francis always used to laugh um, when he was told that if he, we made more political appointments, then then nobody would actually challenge the minister because I think that his special <laughs> advisors occasionally gave him rather a hard time. Um, so, um, which is as it should be. And then we'd, and the, then the private office would equally be encouraged to give that frank challenge as well. And it's a very important part of government. Um, equally, once decisions are made, they need to happen and they need to be implemented. But, um, but I, I would very much want to work for uh, somebody who had a clear agenda, was um, was a- capable of taking decisions that you would be able to know uh, broadly what would be acceptable and not acceptable and know when you would have to go back and uh, absolutely confirm things with, with the minister. And um, and it's very important to know that you're... Um, that, that you, you give a lot of loyalty to to your minister as a special advisor, and um, and obviously mistakes happen. And just as you should have your ministers back completely, it's it's always good to know that they've got yours. Mm. Mm. John, anything to add on that? I think Simone is absolutely right. It's you you want to work for a minister who knows what they're doing. Um, so it could be they have a really strong policy agenda. It could be. They have a really strong sense of how to uh, fight a political battle or communicate. So when Jim Murphy, who I worked for, was Secretary of State for Scotland, he 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 focused on uh, the imagery, uh, the Scottish imagery. He focused on taking the battle symbolically to the Scottish National uh, Party, Scottish government. Uh, he 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 wanted he wanted a an agenda fleshed out around a political campaign about which he was really clear and so in a sense that was a good i've worked with a number of different ministers and each of them it's been good because there's a clarity about the contribution that you make as an advisor and the contribution they make as the minister but it's always been driven by the minister having a sense of purpose um and knowing where they want to get to and i think that's what a department likes as well and a good department uh, is one that knows where they're going to be taken and they can they, they don't want to really disagree with it. They want to actually improve the way the minister wants to get to the destination they want to get to. So I think that's that, that for me, is important. And the other thing which uh, we touched in the previous little round of discussion about networks within the parliamentary party, um, you want ministers who not only are good and loyal when they're ministers, you want them to be good and loyal when they're on the back benches. Um, the number of ministers who believed that every decision made by government when they were in it was perfect and that every decision when they're out of it was wrong and could be criticised um, <laughs> is, 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 is really large. I used to convene a group um, called the Non-Embittered Former Ministers. They were quite a small group, but they were very useful because there are people who had been reshuffled and moved to the backbenches but were still loyal to number 10. <laughs> um, it's a small, but it, it's it's um, there comes a point in every in, in every government's life when there are, when the number of people on the backbench who've been who have been ministers is larger than your majority, and that's a danger zone. It depends how you treat the minister when they when when they go as well. That that's that's actually a very important um, way of making sure people are not bitter sure. when they go. Yeah, absolutely. Tim, sorry, Paul, uh, um, Tim, uh, Simon and John are putting across this very, very worthy picture of special advisors who own it. By the way, it's total rubbish because you want to work for someone who's going to be fun, who's going to have a great job. You know, people would be like, I only want to work for a defence secretary because I want to fly in on like, and yeah. go and buy out all the amazing military equipment. <laughs> Or, you know, I mean, DCMS, when I worked there, was amazing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and um, you know, all the, all the art stuff that you got to got to do off the back of it. So there's also an element of kind of, you know, what's enjoyable for you as well. So I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want anyone to be left with the impression that, you know, we're all these kind of like stately individuals. 
<laughs> I think that's fair enough. I mean, you know, it's it it was it was it's it's a, a privilege and b incredibly good fun a lot of the yeah. time. And yeah. you know, and I I would often go from number ten and if did from the cabinet office into number ten through the link door mm-hmm. and slightly pinch myself and remember that you know when from my school days in Swansea this was quite a big job. So um, <laughs> I, I, I do I, I I used to remind myself of that when I was getting really fed up with something or um, or whatever. Yeah. But, uh, so, so yes, it's 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 um, it's 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 a huge privilege, but you do um, you do want to also um, get things done, and, and the system can be. Um, in fact, to go to something that John said uh, before that, which was departments love being given a sense of a mission and mm-hmm. um, and civil servants. I mean, look look what Michael Gove did in Defra. It was a sort of Absolutely. the backwater department, yeah. and all of a sudden it became um, with a bit of renewed energy and enthusiasm um, the happening place to go to in government. And it, it is really important to do that and and to, to fire fire up civil servants. But the resistance I discovered, and particularly you know I. I did, you know, an, a cross-cutting government agenda um, was was that it, the resistance was not political with a big P political, but political with a small P political. So if if you if you had a big political mission, you found civil servants who were very keen to do this, and you could have a great time. The transparency agenda, the government digital service, all of that was great fun, but um, and and the, and it worked well. But it was actually when you were encroaching on the on the powers of the of the permanent secretaries or departmental autonomy and they claimed mm-hmm. their reforms were embedded um which meant they were six feet under um th- all these things were sort of um th- were more um were more difficult to get through so it was sort of don't challenge their power and their way of doing things it's um but the but getting your big mission through it wasn't wasn't hard if you could enthuse everyone Every every point that we are making is actually very dependent on the minister. And I think the one thing that is actually missing in a lot of what happens in, in the in Whitehall is that ministerial piece. Because they are subject to political manoeuvrings and you know whatever the Prime Minister decides. There has never been any kind of standardised way of training a minister to go and do the job. And I often think that rather than just focusing on the special advisors and the support for the ministers, that's something that actually tells ministers what they're supposed to do rather than just the kind of little chat that they have with the prime minister before they're sent off to the new department is the big missing piece in in Whitehall. That how do you servants how should you even use your special advisors quite often people are recruiting special advisors having never had anybody work for them in this way before so um i actually think that sometimes that's that's the bigger missing piece we did try actually to do ministerial training um you know and there were some sessions done at the time with the institute for government um but they they didn't they didn't ever seem to take off for some reason which was a shame well, we still I, do I, some with, with individual ministers. There is still some appetite out there. But as you say, Salma, and I think this is the key point here generally, isn't it? It depends very much on the personality of the individual minister and their kind of background and their expectations. So it is hard to standardise anything. I think, I mean, I, th- I think from my experience of the the, the small amounts of ministerial training that, that, that were attempted in my time, there's a... Re- there's a there's, um, a really important thing to understand, which is that ministers are not colleagues, they're enemies. Um, and, you know, uh, for example, the first piece of, bit of junior ministerial training that Jim Murphy was sent on, he was in uh, the this, this same batch as Tom Watson. Now, um, <laughs> Tom and Jim, were, Tom and Jim uh, from student politics had never been friends. So kind of, <laughs> it was just a kind of misjudgment uh, uh, of that. And the, I suspect the bridge between between the individuals who understand any things and the, the, the broader group do need um, quite a lot of support. I mean, if you look at the kind of support that the CEO of a FTSE 100 company will, will get, it's massively different to the kind of support for the individual, the kind of leadership development and the investment in them year in, year out than any minister gets. And ministers run departments which are of equivalent size to um, a FTSE 100 company. I think the bridge between the individual and the group is something like a learning set because some of the most powerful, uh, personally led uh, leadership development I've seen in the public service has been 
learning sets established early in careers with people who choose to learn together uh, and because you make you create an affinity group and I think if you had more investment in, in in that kind of thing you'd see people growing up through their career becoming you know becoming MPs becoming part becoming uh, opposition spokespeople becoming whips becoming ministers becoming advisors you'd have these groups uh, and some of the most successful public service leaders I know are still members of learning sets which now are stretched quite widely in terms of where people are la landed and so I think the, the, the development investment needs to be across the piece and not just like now you're a minister um, yeah. yeah yeah i i also think i mean you know the, the problem was that they i always felt there was never enough investment though in the top officials um you know yes. we, we we absolutely the, the, a lot of these officials are sent to run departments having had a policy background in whitehall without the massive experience of running a major organization and um and and we, we, we did suggest, I mean, Francis suggested that uh, maybe a few of the sort of top up and coming permanent secretaries should go on a, a program of management development course, such as they do in Harvard or Stanford or whatever. And, um, and for some reason, um, you know, he said, I'll go and defend it. Um, the Daily Mail can say what they like. This is important. This is investment in, in the future for people who could learn from outside as well. And they absolutely, um, it just never happened. I mean, one permanent secretary, permanent secretary went on one week's course in IMD in Lausanne and they, they just didn't seem to want to put the investment in and it, it's very frustrating because it's quite an important part of the role. So this is, is an interesting point. Is it worth us talking a bit more about special advisors developments and sort of support for uh, for, for SPAD? You know, how much, you know, Sami, you talked about it's quite a sort of informal recruitment process. Once you're in the job, how much guidance and support do, do SPADs get for their own development as well? I think mostly they're just left to their own devices, which is slightly the problem. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I love the idea of John, John hosting a lovely tea party for everybody on a Friday afternoon. But to be honest with you, I mean, if, it, if it's not enforced, it's not something that, you know, that actually has some value for the special advisor. I don't know how you would get um, people to go week in, week out without some kind of either punishment meted out if you don't turn up or uh, some kind of reward for you know having done something brilliant in the week I think the, the, the problem for SPADS is again it goes back to my original point it is always dependent on what your minister wants you to do so the quality of the special advisor that comes through can be very mixed um and you know there there is there is a problem in that you know we don't have a fast stream process where there's a to basic level of understanding and that you're going you're going through a grade process and we don't have a salary process that sort of denotes at what stage you are in your career and what's expected of you and you know to give you any kind of um positive remuneration depending on your performance so that kind of stuff actually structurally for special advisors makes it very difficult for them to be able to understand where they are in the system um a lot of it is just dependent on that central patronage and so if you're if you're a special advisor who is not that attached to your minister and you want to be recycled it's probably in your interest to be nice to the center and everybody at number 10 um but if you happen to have a relationship with your uh, you know a very strong relationship with your minister then you're probably going to suffer somehow on salary or terms and conditions or you know what's expected of you or you know what your working condition is and how you're treated by the center so i think some of that actually does need to be exposed a bit more so that there can be some kind of rectification of the way that uh, special advisors are treated and i'm not suggesting that it's just a simply a question of you know giving them the same terms as civil servants i think it is also about making sure that there is a certain standard that um is is met on appointment yeah i i i i i, I totally agree with that but um it's and, and we did try when i was there because pay rates were always a massive row um and to, to try and say, okay, well, there needs to be a pay ban scheme that there is progression as there would be for a, 
for an equivalent civil servant. But then the centre always resisted that because they said, well, we don't want special advisors to be put into the category of, you know, the, the sort of the hierarchy of the civil service, which, um, you know, and, and the arguments were, you know, the arguments always came to, to stop you from doing anything sensible. Um, and I always used to love the fact that the special advisor code was about sort of 20 pages long, most of which were told civil servants how to complain about special advisors rather than, um, and the civil service code was on sort of one piece of A4, but never mind. <laughs> so how, are, how are SPAD salaries negotiated? Who who sets that? <laughs> That's an interesting one. This is like a hour long discussion. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not fairly any more than the pension provision is set fairly. That, yeah. Yeah, that, that would probably be the best answer. I, I think in the coalition there was a group of four people who had to approve it. Um, but, of course, um, but, you know, then ministers would lobby other people within that group of four because it was a coalition one that why are the Lib Dem advisors getting more, etc. So it was a nightmare. Mm. There, yeah, were, and there, there, there were extraordinary attempts made to use crown prerogative to deprive advisors in my time uh, of basic uh, employment rights. So uh, one example was um, a woman who was on maternity leave and the department attempted to sack her because her minister uh, was sacked in a reshuffle while she was on maternity leave. Um, and the, the department wouldn't uh, accept they were wrong. Um, the union said they couldn't give any help. Uh, employment lawyers said they couldn't give any help. I eventually, from number 10, just intervened directly with Sue Gray in the cabinet office and pointed out that my previous boss, um, Harriet Harmon, had extended maternity rights to all workers and that, cram- that actually that, that came over the top of Crown prerogative and they better do something about it. And so they did. But some of the, the that's the that's the other side of uh, advisors being in departments and being away from each other, uh, which you don't get, you don't necessarily get the solidarity or the protection of that, the, be able to, the ability to compare cases with each other. I also think um, that when you are faced with a situation like that, it just goes to show you why you have to get sort of 20-something-year-olds to go off and do special advisor jobs because there aren't that many protections for people who have families who've progressed a little bit in their careers and who probably are a bit more sort of even-tempered and experienced. Um, and, you know, going back to the point on salary, if, if things are not done fairly and transparently with some kind of sensible progression structure, you're not going to get people who have mortgages and responsibilities who are going to go in and do these jobs. And that's just kind of a fundamental problem uh, for ministers who are looking to try and recruit the best in in government. And it's not saying that you can't get very, very clever 20-something-year-olds. There's there's lots of them who work incredibly hard, but it's about getting that balance in government, about people who actually – can manage and interact with civil servants um, in a way that you probably aren't experienced enough to do if you turn up at 25. Do you think there should be more transparency about what special advisors do? So, you know, there's a lot of calls for, for them to be made more transparent. One of the issues at the moment is around uh, the role of David Frost, who's, who's the chief Brexit negotiator or chief negotiator with the EU on the, on the trade deal. Um, you know, he is a political appointee to number 10. He's this kind of quasi-spad, but he also gives... Uh, press conferences and make speeches and so on. So should there be, be more kind of clarity around what a SPAD's roles and responsibilities are? I think there's already, um, the, the Special Advisor Code it's, makes it quite clear what the role uh, should be. Um, and I think it's more prescriptive than anything a, a civil servant is given. And I always go back to the, set, the principle that you are, you know, to, to what the basic definition of a special advisor is, which is a temporary civil servant. So, um, so unless the civil servants are going to get that sort of transparency and God, God knows we tried very hard with the transparency agenda in government. But I do remember, you know, the most senior officials um, try, trying to stop us from giving any of this information out, looking fairly horrified that we were asking the questions of staff in departments. I mean, they didn't know how many civil servants they were when we came in the coalition in 2010. Um, so, so the point is that you can, you can, you can get this shining light on one small band of people in government. Um, and yet you don't shine a light on the rest of it, which is quite frustrating. 
and it and it, it i think that, i think that's absolutely right and it sort of then suggests that somehow all special advisor advice is somehow uh, superior to all the other advice that's given when actually the, the the segment of political advice that we provide is part of a wider system so that's why we should we shouldn't be singled out and i think you know david frost's role is unique and different and that needs to be treated separately to the rest of the system in the way that it's that it's always been since the inception of special advisors i have one more question to finish with if that's all right um what would your advice be to a new special advisor? <laughs> Run. <laughs> <laughs> go, and enjoy, go, and, go and enjoy it and, um, and, and, and try and, 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 try and, and basically get on um, and make sure you've got a private office that you can work with, works with your ministers and, um, and can get um, the priorities through. John? Uh, I think I think I'd say um, two things. One is really, really make sure you want to work closely with that person uh, because it's such an intense personal relationship. It will drive you nuts if you don't have the capacity to work in sometimes close quarters, sometimes close intellectually and politically, sometimes under stress. Um, and uh, and the second thing is. Have your own exit strategy prepared. Do not believe. Do, a minister will promise you anything to take the job. They believe it when they say it. As soon as you accept the job, they forget about it. You have to. You have to prepare your own plan for leaving. Uh, and yeah, obviously enjoy it because it's an immense privilege uh, to get so close to the centre of power without having to go through the tedium of being elected. Well, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> after after being um, so rude about John and Simon trying to be so worthy, I've got to say, the only advice that I would I would give any special advisor is um, it is an absolute privilege to serve your country and to do it in this way and enjoy every single moment that you have of of doing it because I, there aren't many jobs that compare to this one. No, you'll never have that. You'll never have the time again, yeah. and that, um, that that's absolutely true. Brilliant, cool. Well, that seems like a, a good point to wrap up, unless there's anything else. Um, so I'm going to say thank you very much to our panel, to Salma, John, and Simone. Thank you to everyone who suggested questions online, and thank you to everyone who is listening. Um, here at the IFG, we are going to keep looking at the role of special advisors, even even during the coronavirus outbreak. So do keep checking back for more updates. Uh, have a look at our website instituteforgovernment.org.uk and our Twitter feed for news of upcoming IFG Lives. Next one in the series, uh, my colleague Alex Thomas will be on IFG Live later in the week to look at priorities for reforming the civil service, uh, picking up on some of the themes we've been discussing today. Um, And you can listen to all of these virtual events on our IFG Live podcast, which you can find on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you download your podcasts. And of course, our usual weekly podcast, Inside Briefing, continues as normal. So thank you again, stay safe and see you soon.